morning. I know what y'all are thinking. Yeah, there's no walkout song this morning. One of uh, my favorite old preacher stories is about this old preacher in a small church. And he got up one Sunday and he said, I'd like to speak to you today about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And everybody was awed by the sermon. And at the end, on the way out, they all congratulated him, shook his hand, patted him on the back, and said, that's one of the best sermons we've ever heard. And they went away amazed. And the next Sunday, they came back, and he got up, and he got behind the pulpit, and he said, today I'd like to speak to you about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And everybody sat there and was kind of like, well, that was odd. I, I wonder if he realized he preached the exact same sermon last week. Maybe he just forgot, you know, we'll let it go. The third week he came in and he said, I'd like to speak to you this morning about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And then the murmurs started. They're like, I think he's losing it. We've got to do something, but they said, we'll give him one more chance. He came back the next week and said, I'd like to preach to you this morning about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And they said, finally, okay, this is enough. We've got to have a meeting with him. So they scheduled it for the next Sunday evening. But that Sunday morning, he came in and he said, I'd like to speak to you this morning about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And so at the meeting that night, they said, we're not sure if you're aware of this, but five weeks in a row, you've preached the same sermon. We're worried that you're losing it mentally. And the preacher stood up and he said, I'm aware I preached the same sermon five weeks in a row, and I will continue to preach it until you get it and start living it out. Now, while I have you all here, I'd like to speak to you about loving the Lord your God. <laughs> I say that to say that this morning, some of the things I'm going to talk about, you'll be like, we've talked about that before. We've heard that before. We've looked at that passage maybe before, and it's true. And I, I don't offer it up in the sense of like, you're not getting this, but sometimes we need to hear things a few times to let it really sink in and wrestle with it, and you hear it in, in a different way. And we're going to talk about the cross this morning. And the title of my lesson is, Is Your Cross Too Small? Now, some of you will remember this. When I was a kid, we would go to the grocery store and you would get your groceries in one of these little wonder doodads, this little brown paper bag, which were very versatile at the time because for those of you my age, you remember this also doubled as a textbook cover. <laughs> right? But now back then, and I like this one because this really recreates the old days. This was before evidently the handle technology was invented. Although I'm not sure that's an upgrade. Those are like the most unreliable things. But then suddenly these became the problem. And the message was, you're destroying the rainforests with these bags. We're, we're killing all the trees, paper bags, bad. And we're like, okay, 
What do we use? Well, we have something better. (laughs) To save the world, you need to use these. Forget these. This is going to save the world. And we were all like, okay, well, and these handles are better, you know? So, all right. So then we started this process where we now have this weird part of our pantry where we have a bag of bags and <laughs> try to reuse these. And who needs small garbage bags now for their bathroom anymore? You just put this in there. Well, then we discovered maybe not the best thing. Now we're killing the oceans because of these. And they're like our entire floating islands in the ocean of like plastic and we're overflowing with plastic and some countries where we were shoving all our plastic is now going, we don't want anymore. We're not taking it anymore. We literally have nowhere to do with it. So then it kind of went back to, okay, you got to use these again. So these are out, these are back in to save the planet, to fix the problems. And then, I don't know, somewhere along the line, we just got bored with that and we were like, you know, these actually are easier. Maybe we'll go back to these. Now it's hard to get these. You have to like hunt them down and find them. So we're still using these, even though these aren't solving the problems. And then they're like, bring your own bag. And it's like, I can't even remember what I'm supposed to be buying here, let alone (laughs) to bring my own bag. But the thing is, there's always some idea of how we're going to fix everything and save the world. And The reality is, and I'm not saying there's never good ideas or we should just blow everything off, but it seems like the the more we want to fix the problems, we never quite get there in the world. The things that we think are going to solve the problems don't quite do it. Look over in 1 Corinthians. As I said, we're going to talk about the cross today as the actual solution for the world's problems and consider what maybe aren't some of the solutions that we rely on in many, in many ways. And in verse 18, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now note one important thing here. Paul says that the cross itself is a message. Now there's some very real aspects of the cross, but it has a message. The cross has a message. And what we see as as you dig in and really go through 1 Corinthians in detail is that that message, what Paul has in mind, is not so much one that comes out of our mouth, but one that is embodied by our lives, our corporate life together as a church. This is what he's challenging Corinth on, is I want the message of your corporate life to be the shape of the cross, to be the same message as the cross is. And he says it looks stupid to the world. It just doesn't make sense to the world. And he goes on in verse 19, he says, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. In other words, all the things we think will work, 
God will say, watch this. I'm going to fix things through the one thing you don't think could ever work. In verse 20, it says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign, Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And he goes on from there, but I want to note in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I want to take some time this morning to explore the message and the wisdom of the cross as opposed to the wisdom of the world. So I'll warn you right now, this is going to be a message on the cross. We're not going to look at any verses about the actual cross event. We're going to consider the message of the cross. And it's not to minimize what took place historically on the cross, but I think, I think we're familiar with that. I think we spend time with that. We consider the implications. We know that Jesus dying on the cross freed us from our individual sins and restored us with God. And there's this beautiful individual aspect of forgiveness. I'm not minimizing any of that. However, if that's all the cross is to us, then our cross is way too small. If, if that's all we ever think about is the forgiveness of my sins and that because of the cross, I can be with God in eternity one day, that's all amazing. And we should talk about it and sing about it and preach about it. But if that's as far as we ever go, it's, it's much too limiting. It's a much bigger message than that. In fact, that would be like getting a smartphone and only using it for phone calls. Like, okay, I mean, it, it's functional, but you know there's a lot more that this thing does than just make calls. Some of you older folks are just figuring that out as I'm speaking, but <laughs> it's okay. My parents, I love them to death. They still have flip phones. They're like, we don't, I don't, their, their standard line is, I don't want a small phone smarter than me. So, um, <clears throat> one of the things is, I think we have to understand, to know what the message of the cross is and the solution that it has, it's important to go back and understand the problem. So let's go back for just a moment and consider Genesis chapter 1. You can turn there or you don't have to. Uh, I just want to remind us of one verse in verse 27, chapter 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Now, is each individual human being an image bearer of God? Yes. Without a doubt, that's important. But again, we're gonna step beyond that a little bit this morning. There's a greater emphasis in Genesis and throughout the Bible on image bearing than just the individual aspect. 
And if we understand, if we follow the flow of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, and even the concept of image bearing in the ancient world, which I'm gonna just remind us of here real quick, we see that there is a really important aspect beyond just individual. Because in the ancient world, image bearing was limited to just the king. It, it, it reminded people of hierarchy. The king or the leader or the ruler was the image bearer. He was up here. He was the go-between between the gods, the representative of the god, the will, the character, all of that of the god was embodied in the king, and then everybody else was below him. So the idea of image bearing in itself exalted, it, it was about power. It was about hierarchy and strength and might and all those things. Genesis flips it on its head and says, no, 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 no. The way God created the world was that every human being is an image bearer. Male, female, whatever it is, there is no hierarchy. We talk, we've talked about that before, right? There's no steps. There's none of that. This is, so, so there's three elements to image bearing that are important. One is, it's a community. God designed humans to live in community as image bearers. To be a people. That's how human beings were supposed to be. That's what God has always desired. That's what he's always working to create is a people. Not just individual worshipers. God wants a people to reflect and represent him. So it's community. But it's a community that's a particular shape. And that would be a community of equality or wholeness. Or what the, the English word that I think best captures that would be a community of justice. That's the Bible's idea of justice, is that there, there's not people with power over each other and people manipulating and oppressing and putting down and all of the sort of things that we do. That's, that's not present in a community of true image bearing, Okay. And the third element is the representative element. So it is a community of justice that represents God. Or the way I'll word it here this morning is a community that tells the truth about who God is by its collective life. So you should be able to look at an image-bearing community and learn about who God is and his core fundamental nature by what that community values and how they live. One that tells the truth about God. Does that make sense? So, as God tries to create throughout the story of the Bible, this image-bearing community and restore us to what human beings are supposed to be as image-bearers, what we see is that the image-bearing community is one that will embody the aspects of the new creation, of when, when, when we're in God's presence fully and he's here and restored everything, this is what the world will look like, where there is no hate, there is no division, there is no power one over the other, all of those things, and so we are to embody those dynamics of new creation, but the challenge is we are in the context of old creation surrounded by the dynamics of old creation and constantly being anti-discipled and reformed and shaped and told and brainwashed that the dynamics of old creation are what works and that's wisdom and that's what we're going to need to get ahead. But if we rely on those dynamics, then we cease to be the image-bearing community. Does that make sense? 
And the bridge from the old creation to the new creation is the cross of Jesus Christ. But not just as a singular event. It's bigger than that. It includes that, but it's bigger than that. One of my favorite passages that I think depicts the cross is in Revelation chapter five. And you might go, wait a minute. There's no mention of the cross in Revelation five. I think there is. Is it directly mentioned? No. But is this a word picture of the cross? The shape of the cross? It is. In fact, I would argue that the whole book of Revelation is. It is what the cross looks like when it confronts the power of the world. And let me just, spoiler alert, give you the crux of the battle here. The solution that the world has at its base core for all our problems is power. If we can have power, we can fix things. In fact, they have power, they're messing up, we need to get the power. We'll get the power so that we can fix. And whether it's military power, national power, political power, ideological power, power in your HOA, I don't care where it is, <laughs> the people with the power, and there's very few things as tyrannical as an HOA, can I get an amen on that? Um, you may have a wonderful one, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding if anybody from my HOA sees this. <laughs> But we, we believe that power works. And it's incredibly seductive. Yes. But the other argument is the cross. And before we go, amen, too quick. Do you really believe that weakness and losing is the way to fix problems? Because that's what the cross represents. It's, a la it's the opposite of power. It's sacrifice, it's emptying, it's, it's giving. In fact, may I suggest that sometimes we approach the cross in lust with the cross more than in love with it. Because lust takes, lust wants to receive, lust wants to be blessed, lust wants to hoard. Lust wants everything good to come my way. Love gives. It pours out. So it's easy to come even in the cross and go, I want the blessings of the cross and the forgiveness of the cross and the healing of the cross and the wholeness of the cross and I want it all and that's what I want and not realize, but the cross, if I really understand it, it's calling me to do the opposite of all those things. To pour out, to give, to sacrifice. To not be so worried about what I'm getting. It's the opposite. And I don't know about you, but that's really hard for me, and that's not, it's not my natural bent. In Revelation chapter 5, of course, we have this scene, and I'm going to more describe it than read it, just for sake of time here in Revelation. But 
there's one seated on the throne and he has the scroll in his hands and we see that that scroll is really kind of representative of all the problems in the world and who's going to fix them and nobody can fix them. And in fact, that statement is made directly, there's nobody worthy to open the scroll. Nobody can figure this out, not even the most powerful. And then John has this pattern in Revelation of what we want comes first and then we see the actual reality of the form that is going to work. So he'll hear, we'll hear what we want, and then when we look, we see something different. So he says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to, to open the scroll. That's what we want. We want, the, and the lion of Judah, going back to Genesis 49, represents the way they were thinking of it was like it was military might, it was power. The lion will get this done. That's what we need right now. And, and we fall for that all the time. In all kinds of little ways in our world, that's what will fix things, power. But then as John looks, he was weeping because nobody could solve the problem. Then it's like, oh, there's a lion. Yes, that's what I want. And as he looks, he sees the cross. He sees a lamb that was slain. He wanted power but he's being shown the cross. There's all these problems in the world and there's empire and all that it stands for. And in fact, we see a, a competition of sorts throughout Revelation because in chapter 13, the world's version appears, the opposite of the lamb, the beast. The beast comes out and the beast has heads and horns and crowns and everything that was symbolic of power, it's almost too much. In Revelation 13, it's like overkill. Okay, we get it. The beast is power. And the people's response in Revelation 13, do you know what it is? They go, ooh, who is like the beast? Who can make war against the beast? Power will keep us safe. Power will keep us moving in the directions that we need to. It'll bring us stability. It'll keep our way of life going. It'll keep the bad guys out. It will solve the problems in the world. But the message of Revelation is no, 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 no. It's the slain lamb. And it's not just an event, it's a message. It's the shape. The slain lamb, in fact, is not just the solution to our problem. It's also the shape that our lives are to take. We're to be formed to the lamb. In fact, look at Revelation chapter 12. And we see this. We're not going to look at this whole thing. But in verse 11, it's talking about the people of the lamb coming in conflict with the dragon. And in verse 11, it says, they triumphed over him. By what? The blood of the lamb. And the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Please do not read that as simply they were speaking 
truth. The word of their testimony means the shape of their life, the message that they were living out. It's the blood of the lamb, it's the cross. This is who are we, we are to be. And too often, we focus on the cross and what it does for us individually, but we do not pay attention to it corporately, who it calls us to be. But God is trying to shape a people. The Bible tells us one of the biggest forces of the dominion of darkness is the powers and authorities which are trying to fool us as a people and lead us astray as cultures, nations, groups, you name it, institutions. And we pay no attention to those things. And so we walk around as, well, I'm an individual redeemed by the cross, but let me just hop in power over here and join in power over here. This is going to be a problem in 2024 if we don't get a grip on this. Because the messages are going to come from everywhere. This group has it figured out. No, join our power over here. They're idiots. They don't know what they're doing. No, this, that. And just look for, pull up the hood a little bit and look for power underneath. Because that's ultimately what it's all about. Are they preaching the cross? If they're not cross-shaped, then we should leave them to their realm. It's not our job to try to tear them all down, but it's our job to be an alternate witness. In fact, we see this come to a crescendo in Revelation 19. I love the imagery there. And some people, I think, don't maybe read Revelation 19 really carefully. Uh, because one, it's apocalyptic, which means it's symbolic. Everything in there is symbolic. And so in Revelation 19, it comes to a head and there's this big battle at the end, and oh, there's going to be this huge battle. Here we go. And one day, like, that was always the weirdest thing to me as a kid. Like, why would Jesus need to come and have a physical battle with the armies of the world? Like, couldn't he just, you know, that's not what Revelation is indicating. It's symbolic. It's, it's talking about this conflict between power and the cross and what's really going to help the world. And in Revelation 19, it says, okay, all the, all the armies of the world have amassed against the lamb and here he comes and he's riding on a horse and he's got his white robe on and his white horse and here he goes and then he wins the battle by his own robe being dipped in his own blood and the sword that comes from his mouth there's no actual battle if you read revelation 19 he wins by his own self-sacrifice and the message that that proclaims to the world it's the same thing as Revelation 12. This is, this is what wins. It's power versus the cross. In, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus keeps telling his disciples, I'm going to go the way of the cross. This is the shape of my life. This is what I want you to watch because this is the shape that I want you to live and form communities of in after I'm gone. And in Mark 8, 31 and 32, he tells them, I'm going to the cross. This is the shape of my life. And they don't understand it. And then in Mark 9, 31, again, he says, I'm going to the cross. This is the shape. This is how, where we're heading. And they don't understand it. And again, 
In Mark 10, 32 to 34, for the third time, I'm going to the cross. And they don't get it. And finally, look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45, because he just comes straight out and says it. And this might be one of the most important passages in the New Testament. Jesus called them together, this is verse 42, together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. They operate in power. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He just says it straight out. Power will never work. It never will. And in fact, here's the important message of the Bible, I think, over and over again. If you trust in power, you have just signed your own death certificate. Because there's always another power coming. Power will always fall to power. So the minute we buy into power, and you can see that in the history of Christianity, every time Christianity dips its toe into power, cultural power, political power, it's terrible. Disaster happens. Think of Hebrews 12, where it says, all the things that can be shaken will be shaken. And we get so freaked out when things are being shaken and we don't stop to realize maybe that's God letting us know that those were not things of the kingdom anyways. That's power. That's what happens. Whether it's power in an institution, whether we built power into our churches, whether we trusted it politically, whether we trusted in our nation to have power, it will crumble and fall. It's supposed to. That's the way it works. The only thing that does not crumble and fall is the cross. And look at a couple verses. We're, we're almost out of time here, but I want to hit these. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <laughs> Amen. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age. What's the wisdom of this age? Power wins. Not the wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So Paul's now talking about the rulers and the powers and authorities. They're kind of all one and the same. They're, they're pushing that message of power. No, he says, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand the cross. They think it's loser ground. They thought they were winning. They thought power, we've got power over the son of God. And it was their very ground of defeat. The beast thought the lamb was defeated, but that's exactly how it lost. In Colossians 2.15, it says that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities through the cross. One final verse here, 2 Corinthians. We've got more, but I can't get to them today. So 
We'll have to do it another time. But 2 Corinthians, let's end on this. 2 Corinthians 5. Now, don't read this like individuals because it's not the primary message here. This is what the shape of the community is supposed to look like. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Older translations will say he is a new creation. Bad translation. The new creation has come. We've entered it. It's, it's come into us. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Took a, he, in fact, you'll see New Testament scriptures, the way it talks about being saved, we often reduce that to just an individual thing. But go back and read a lot of Paul's references. It says he saved us out of the dominion of darkness, out of the clutches of the powers and authorities, and into this realm of Christ, the new creation, to be a different sort of people, to not be a power people, but to be a lamb people, a cross people. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We are the message of the cross. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There, he's calling to community, but wait for it. Community that represents God. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I'll just say this really quickly. This is pretty well established. You can look this up if you want, but scholars now pretty much all agree that in the New Testament, when, when you see the English word righteous, that can be translated as righteous or justice. It's the same word Hebrew and Greek, right? So what this verse says is God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the justice of God. The justice of God is the cross. It is a people living on that ground that ground of sacrifice, being that image-bearing people. And so what it means is we're called to reimagine how to win without power, how to operate in the world without power. That's hard to imagine. And the problem is we're often limited to our imagination. So we've got to go back into Scripture and start thinking about what it means to operate without power in relationships, without power in the way we deal with one another, without power in how we motivate others spiritually, without power with how we organize ourselves into spiritual communities. And by the way, I'll say this quickly, the world confuses power and authority as though they're the same thing. We can have authority and roles without power, but it takes a whole new imagination how to change the world without power, how to interact in the political and social spheres without power. Because the minute we start grabbing power, we're no longer the people 
of the cross. As we take communion this morning, as you're taking communion, just let's start thinking about that again. What does it look like for us to be a people without power, a people of the cross, to, to, to have the cross as a foundation that informs everything that we do, not just as individuals, but as a people. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the cross. It is, it is bigger than we could ever talk about. We could talk about the cross every day for the rest of the year and we would just begin to scratch the surface of its, of its depth and its true power and what it calls us to. Help us to understand the power of the lamb rather than the power of the world. That it's in laying our lives down, being a self-sacrificial people that don't seek power, don't seek might, don't trust in strength, don't Rely on those things. Spirit, we ask that you start to move in us collectively and show us the way forward as the world needs it so desperately now and will continue to more and more in the coming months and years. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.